Welcome to this Swanton Writers interview with one of our guests of honour, the prolific and popular Kylie Chan. I'm Helen and we're recording this interview for Galactic Chat. Kylie is the author of three three-book fantasy series, Dark Heavens, Journey to Wudang and Celestial Battle, the ninth book of which she's working on now. How are you enjoying Swanton, Kylie? I'm having an absolute blast. This is so cool. It's I'm seeing people that I haven't seen in a long time and meeting a whole lot of new people and the topics in the panels have been very, very interesting. No, it's been great. Cannot, yeah. It's been terrific. Great. Thank you, West Australia. Um, Now, tell us about your latest release, Demon Child. Uh, Is it tricky as a writer to make it easy for a reader to slip into a sequel without having read the previous works? Yeah, so I don't do it. Okay. <laughs> if you start reading it, I've got a, a warning note at the front that says, if you start at Demon Child, stupid. No, I don't say stupid. I say, I recommend to your author that you start at the beginning because if you start from here, you're going to get lost. Really. So I don't even try. I gave up trying a long time ago. Um, half the, the public, now this is something that happens is the publisher said, you must have a recap at the start of each book to put the reader back where they were and the readers say, thank God she didn't put a read, a recap at the front of the book, which is really boring. We didn't need it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you mind readers of any stuff that happened a while ago or you just expect them to, or they just don't remember? I remind. I put in tips and if that's not good enough for you, it sucks to be you too bad. <laughs> 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 now, some of your fans have asked about the change in title from Dark Turtle to Demon Child in your latest book. What's yes. the story behind that? Okay, for the final trilogy, the editor at HarperCollins contacted me and she said, I need titles for the last trilogy. I said, I haven't thought of them. She said, well, think of something. And I thought about the first one, which was going to be set in... Celtic mythology, so I called it Glass Citadel. I thought, wow, that sounds really cool, actually, Glass Citadel. Uh, And then I wanted to keep the location thing going, so I said, all right, the three books out of midair are going to be Glass Citadel, Mountain Fortress, and Celestial Palace, because each of those things is going to fall one by one. And they said, okay, we'll go with that. Before that, they, they, we talked about, and I, I sort of said, oh, I might call it uh, Dark Serpent, Dark Turtle, because I have White Tiger, Red Phoenix, Blue Dragon. So before that, I, I thought about calling them Dark Serpent, Dark Turtle, Black Shuan Wu. And what's the Shuan Wu? That's the main character's name. Okay. It also means combination of turtle and sword serpent and god of martial arts. So that's how you say it. Spirit Shuan Wu, yes. He has another name too. Jen Wu. Jen Wu, Wu, yeah. Really martial arts. Yes. Um, (laughs) Jen is really. That's the Chinese word for really. Um, So, so, uh, yeah, I was throwing around dark serpent, dark turtle, black Shuan Wu and uh, the publisher said, oh, the first two sound too similar and the last one is unpronounceable. 
so can we change it? And I said, all right, Glass Citadel, Mountain Fortress, um, Celestial Palace. And she said, that sounds really good and we'll go with that. So it was Glass Citadel right up <laughs> until about a week before the final edits came through. I think we were at first pages, which is where no changes are going to be made. And they had the cover done and everything, and they turned around and said, um, Glass Citadel's a bit weak. How about Dark Spectre, Dark Serpent? That was badass. We liked that, Dark Serpent. That was, that was really nice. So we changed it from Glass Citadel to Dark Serpent about two weeks before release. And then when it came to the next one, it was supposed to be Dark Serpent, Dark Turtle. And she said, if we go with Dark Serpent, Dark Turtle, and Black Schwan, the last one is unpronounceable. So can we, repeat, can we not call it Dark Turtle because that sounds too much like Dark Serpent? So what was what, Mountain Fortress? No, that, that, no, that isn't badass enough. So come up with something and come up with it quickly. So I said, oh, how about Demon Child? Yes, all right, we'll go with that. That's badass. <laughs> and then for the last one, Black Shrine Wu is unpronounceable. So can we have something else? And I oh, how about Black Jade? Yes, we'll go with that. So that's the story. It's been changed around quite a few times. And I should have stuck with Glass Citadel and Mountain Fortress. So I like Glass Citadel. It's got lots of S's in it. Maybe in the next series or something? Yeah, maybe I'll maybe. stick to my guns a bit more about titles. But once again, the, the publishers know the business. So when they advise me on something, I generally go along with it. Yeah. Speaking of which, what are you thinking about after book nine is done? Features are good. Features. <laughs> um, I have two things that I'm seriously thinking about. The first one is a cross-dressing samurai time traveller. He's not gay, just a cross-dresser. He likes, he likes being pretty. Um, cool. And all his time-travelling friends who are constantly on the run from a group of future humans who want to see them all dead for some reason, known only to themselves. And the other one is um, the daughter of Xuan Wu, Simone, who goes to university and her one of her friends, who was a boyfriend for about two weeks before they called it off, um, is a kid with a full-blood dragon who doesn't transform. I'm, I mentioned this in the other talk. Um, he, he has no powers, but his brother shows up on his doorstep. He's just had an affair with one of the white tiger's wives and needs him to hide him, and hilarity, hilarity ensues. So someone goes to university or time traveling, cross-dressing samurai, or both at the same time. Uh, how come the tiger's allowed to have so many wives and the wives aren't allowed to have <laughs> multiple flowers? So bizarre. I don't understand. I have written this. Now, tigers, uh, as part of Chinese tradition, tigers are virility. Because tigers have sex for hours at a time. It's a thing they do. So men eat tiger penis as medicine mm. to increase their virility. So rhino and tiger are the two big virility medicines. Not good for the tigers. Not good for the tigers. This is why tigers are so terribly endangered. 
so I made my character the essence of virility. Um, it was not unusual for an emperor in China in traditionally to have more than a hundred wives. In fact, he had representatives who would wander around the country collecting all the pretty girls for him, and it was an honour for them to become a wife. And if they mothered an empress, uh, if they mothered the next emperor, then they could become very, very powerful women. And that was a good life for them, I'd imagine, being a wife? In yes. traditional China, or the wife of the tiger, in traditional China, it was the worst soap opera ever, and they would regularly murder each other. Okay. Uh, Razor Red Lantern is a good example of this. The man only has four wives, but they are constantly fighting each other for who's going to be on top and whose children are going to be on top. Right. So that's yeah. what it was like in traditional yeah, China? Yeah, oh, absolutely. The, the intrigue between the wives was even more, even worse than the intrigue between the men. Um, the tiger's wives all say they love each other, but at the same time, they've got this, they, uh, he, if, yeah, I, I do mention that the wives have murdered each other in the past. How many are there? It changes from story to story. Usually there's more than 100. Okay. Yeah. And it felt like there was about 400 to me. That seemed to be everywhere. Is there? Yeah, there's about 110, between 100 and 110. Um, but fans have come up to me and go, I love the tiger and I would give anything to be one of his wives. And I'm like, <laughs> are you completely... No, the whole set up this man giving you everything you want I think that comes first for them but they do find the tiger incredibly attractive um, when I gave him to my literary agent the first time I gave the books to my literary agent uh, I, the, the tiger was furry fan service and she discovered she was a closet furry she wanted to buy her husband oh. a, a white tiger onesie she told me this <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's Straight up very fancy. Yeah. Pretty cool. Great. Um, <laughs> any furries in the audience? Cool. <laughs> what? Do, oh, sorry, I'm supposed to be a I'll ask you later. Um, now, in one of your blogs, you wrote about how your skill as a writer has developed through writing your almost oh, 10 books, I think, and the pain of reading over your earliest work. So, okay. what? has changed in your approach to writing a novel and your style? Uh, I'm a w more aware with a capital A. Um, Do you want to explain what that means for us? You did go into it before, but... Yeah, I look now at the gender roles and I actually have someone calling out someone else saying that they will cry like, like a little girl. Like, I didn't... I, no! No, you're using girl as an insult? How could I? That's terrible! Yeah, I'm a lot more aware now. Um, um, the original story, the plot was very meandering and the it was, uh, as someone um, criticised, it was just one thing happening after another, although I don't know how a plot could not be one thing <laughs> happening after another, but uh, the direction and the goal and the end point of where I wanted to be was, was not very clear then and the plot has very much crystallised and a lot more of the intrigue has come up and plot twists. So I, I think I'm approaching the whole 
writing thing more intelligently and if I was to do it again I would definitely not write, write such thick books because you can write more small ones than one big one and yeah, get more books out on shelves which is always good. Are you more of a planner now than you were when you started out or did you have the whole... Um, no, yes, definitely I have the whole plot line. I didn't have an ending. I had a rough idea of where I was going but now it's very... I suppose I have to be now that I'm at book nine. It is very, very clear. And I for book seven, I actually wrote a plot line out before I wrote the book. It was only six lines and I didn't stick to it but I had one. <laughs> <laughs> The end has always been in the same place. It's just, yes, just the middle has grown. Rather like my middle has grown, yeah, over <laughs> the last 10 years. No, it's, it's meandered and it's gone in different directions and characters I was not expecting have jumped up and taken over. Like the White Tiger was supposed to only have a walk-on part and he pretty much took over half the first book. Um, so I try and keep control. And do you manage to keep in your mind all the things that have happened or do you have a manual to refer to? Yeah, I, I have a set of... Um, um, I, I have a set of... Uh, it's, um, it's, I've always had a list of things to address. Open threads that must be sorted. I, I've known where, where I wanted to go with them. It's just a matter of where to put the story up. So I have a Moffat list. <laughs> of open hot threads that must be closed although I'm not as clumsy at doing it they never find anything yes uh, hypercolors wouldn't let me get away with not having it um, and they never find anything because I'm very meticulous about keeping notes and knowing where everything is in my head um, there is one plot hole in the whole series that someone has picked up for me and it's so minor that I don't even mention it yeah. I don't even try to explain it away or retcon or anything. It's just it's just sitting there and if you read it like a zillion times and keep track of everything very carefully you'll notice it but otherwise it adds nothing to the story, takes nothing from the story, so I'll go. And it's only one hole. It's one whole, it's one tiny hole. Yeah. Number of words. I'm not I'm not missing something to go in the Royal Easter show here, so yeah. Yeah. One drop stitch is okay. How long does it take you to write a book from uh, to finish? It depends how, whether or not my kids are leaving me alone. Um, uh, usually about a year, but um, Black Jade is taking me longer, partly because the storm trashed my office over the summer holidays. Oh no, the hail? Yeah, not so much the hail as we got. Uh, 100 millimetres dumped on us in 30 minutes and the roof could not cope with it. The week after with the hail didn't do as much damage, uh, although it did $250,000 worth of damage to the college at work and smashed all windows down one side of the building. And also starting the study at the University of Queensland has put a little bit of a halt on the writing. But over the summer, if, if the storm hadn't happened, I would have been very productive. It is more than half done. It's about 60% done and the rest is easy. It's getting over this big final showdown. And yeah, yeah, then it'll be easy. So I'm getting there. Is it good having people ask you for it? Or is it... It's like, the best right. feeling in the world. Yeah, because they're hungry. Um, just to be appreciated like this is 
just launched my little writer heart. Because yeah. right. so many authors work in silence alone and then they release something and nothing happens to it. I, I'm privileged and I'm aware of it. Yeah. I just want to help other writers. Right. And what set you on your writing journey and what have the highlights and hardships been? Um, I came back from Hong Kong at the end of 2002. Um, I'd been working as a private IT consultant, going to people's houses and holding their hands while they did their email. It was very, very lucrative. I was charging a stupid amount of money every hour because I was the only one in the territory who could do it. I was the only one who didn't talk down or use lots of jargon. And I was the only one who was a native English speaker. A lot of the other IT consultants were local Chinese or Indians and they weren't nice to people. They tended to be um, techie, um, <coughs> superior people. They'd just be nasty sometimes. So I had a good following, but I couldn't do that when I came back to Australia. I would have had to start again. Um, I did try call centre for a while, and, and while I was looking after the kids and uh, getting child support, I decided that I was going to write a novel and, and make a million dollars because if J.K. Rowling could do it, so could I. And I looked at what J.K. Rowling did, and she'd done something different from what was out there. It was new. So I looked at what I could do that was new and the obvious thing was my experience of the Chinese culture. So I used that and that's where it started. And I started to write fiction, which is the first time I'd ever written fiction. I'm, I'm going to write a novel. And it just all came out of my head so quickly. Um, the, the creativity had been blocked for like nearly 40 years and it was like opening a floodgate. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, getting it published here in Australia was actually quite straightforward. Um, I was I joined the Queensland Writers Centre because I'm going to be a published author, yay! And I went to seminars at the QWC, and they had one uh, thing called an editorial consultancy with Linda Fennell, who was chief editor of HarperCollins, and you paid $250, so you had to be serious about this, and gave them 10 pages of your manuscript, any 10 pages. And Linda chose four people to talk to. So I gave ten of the weirdest pages out of my first novel and paid my $250. I had one and a half novels written then. And she, she saw me first and she gave me a list of agents to see and she wanted a copy of the manuscript and she gave me a list of publishers to submit to. Even though she kept saying, oh, I don't know if they, they accept unsolicited manuscripts. You have to have an agent before you could submit to them. And I don't think the agents are accepting unsolicited manuscripts. But we want to see it anyway. And she passed it on to Stephanie Smith. And Stephanie adored it. And liked the fact that the floodgates had opened and I had plenty more where that came from. That was the big selling point. That I, I, it, well, I wasn't just a, a one-hit wonder because they know that as an author you have to build a following and produce more books. Uh, and... Yeah, it, it just happened. And then I got my first royalty check and started looking for a real job um, and hoped that they would sell it. I talked to Sean Williams when I got the contract because I'd seen him at the Queensland Writers' Centre and I emailed him and I said, I just got a contract. My agent says to take everything, but is there any advice you would give to someone? He said, don't sell world rights. 
because even though they buy the world rights, they can't publish the book overseas. Um, so my agent said, well, you don't really have a choice. It's all there. It's a buyer's market. They've got plenty of things they can buy and they can always say no to you. So just accept all the terms. So I did and it took more than two and a half years for the book to finally be um, produced overseas. Uh, and there was a, it was bought by Angry Robot to be produced worldwide and then they left Collins and Harper talked about book and the, book, the books back without and they had no intention of publishing them overseas and this is before free international shipping came, turned up and no one overseas had heard of me. The books were doing really, really well here and Harper Voyager over in UK weren't interested in producing them. The UK, US had no interest. They owned the rights. This is an author's worst nightmare. Someone owns the rights to your books and they're not going to produce them. But after I talked to them at Worldcom, they changed their minds. And they've been released overseas. They're uh, delayed for about a year. So book eight, Demon Child, which was released last year, has just been released in the US and has done moderately well, but not as well as it, had, it could have been if it had been jointly released and everyone couldn't have bought it over the internet already. Yeah. What about in Asia? Are you most popular? They've been sold in Japan. I have a Japanese translation. Only book one. Um, a friend of mine who's Japanese said that the translation was very good, which is nice. Uh, Chinese, in general, just pirate everything and someone would have to translate it. Uh, what happens with translations is that an overseas publisher will offer to buy the foreign language rights and they will do the translation. So what you'll hear is like what I heard, oh, there's a publisher in Poland that wants the rights to your book. They'll give you $1,000 for all of them and then they'll translate them and release them in Poland and then you never hear anything else. And that's the way it works. You get $1,000 and then you never hear again. Occasionally, uh, like Hugh Howey's books have gone berserk in Turkey for some reason. He gets, he gets flown to Turkey all the time and he's an absolute superstar in, Turkish, in Turkey and his books have translated into Turkish. So occasionally that will happen. Most of the time you don't hear anything. How did you develop your understanding of Chinese mythology and culture sufficiently to use it in your fiction? I researched the hell out of it. I uh, read on the budding internet back in what, um, 96, 96, uh, 94, 95, yeah, um, right up to 2002. Uh, so 2004, 2005, the internet was just starting to explode and I got onto it and did everything and I went to the library. I didn't go to the UQ library because it wasn't available to me. Now it is, it's even better. But I read the hell out of everything I could get my hands on. I've done more than enough research. I've bought a lot of books. I've bought all of the Chinese classics. So I have a quite an extensive home library as well uh, in, in both. Like I, my Chinese, my written Chinese particularly is pretty awful but it, it helps to have the characters there as well. No, I researched the hell out of it, even though I'd been living there for 10 years. Yeah. And have you considered researching other mythologies as deeply and working in those? Um, 
Absolutely, Japan. I want to go back to Japan. I'd like to get one of those uh, Arts Council grants to go to Japan and start, uh, be a writer in residence in Kyoto Art Centre. We were there in December. My daughter dragged me. I wasn't that keen, uh, particularly with the just the storm that just happened. On, and uh, but she dragged me to Japan, and we went to Tokyo and met up with some friends of hers because it just I was having a two for one offer, and everyone in Brisbane was in Tokyo. <laughs> and they 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 all had been there before. I think every kid under the age of twenty in or under the age of thirty in in Brisbane has been to Japan at least once in the last couple of years because of Jetstar specials from the Gold Coast. Um, and they they went around and I saw the the big Gundam statue and a diver and I saw the Meiji Shrine. But then we went. I said I want to go. She, she organised the whole trip. I didn't do anything. I didn't even research beforehand. It's the first time ever. Every time we did an international trip, I arranged everything and I took the family around. So for the first time in my life, I said, "You do it, and I will follow you around." And so we went to Japan, uh, Tokyo, and I wanted to see temples and gardens. So she took me to Kyoto, and that was mind blowing. Absolutely wonderful. I walked the nightingale floor, which was really special, and saw the temples. I saw the temples and the gardens. Now I have wallpaper of Asian temples that rotates on my computer, and my mind was completely blown when I walked up to some of these temples, and it was my wallpapers. I look at these temples every day, and here I am in front of them. Maddie uh, took me to the Fushigi Inari Temple uh, of the goddess Amaratsu in her fox form. And there were foxes everywhere, and she said, Mum, you don't have to deal with me because I'm going to take photos of lots of foxes. And I'm like, I'm having so much fun, I don't care what you do. But it was wonderful. And tiny foxes? Or statues? Oh, right, okay, I'll think Images of foxes. No, 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 no. And um, Tory Gates. I think I was getting confused with the cat cafe, which was. Oh, yeah. God, those cats are so fat. <laughs> Unbelievably fat. And not de sexed either. I don't know how they managed to keep them going. Yeah. Um, but at least it was better than being out in the streets. Yeah. No, so we had a great time, and I'd like to go back. I said to Maddie, do I have enough on Japan to write about it? And she said, no. So I had to go back. I think she just wants to go back, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a wonderful time. Great. Currently, you're doing a Master's of Philosophy at the University of Queensland. Is that correct? Yes. Um, researching digital self-publishing. Yep. What area within this are you focusing on and how will it influence your fiction writing and publication? Um, what have I, because I was IT before I had a master's degree in IT and you may have noticed that I just sort of packed that in. Um, so when I started writing and digital publishing and self-publishing came up, I spent a couple of weekends with Hugh Howie uh, at Supernovas hanging out with him and he is all about digital self-publishing. Dude, why are you putting up with only 10% when you could be making 70% from Amazon? Which is true. Amazon pays 70% royalties on internationally published books. Um, and he has, he is, he has received six-figure offers from traditional publishing houses after his new trilogy was self-published and he, he turned them down and he negotiated the first time ever for to split digital and print and he retained the digital rights and he let them print the books. Since then, 
Publishers have been burned a couple of times by really successful digital self-published authors who turned out to be kind of like hollow bells, that it, the books weren't as successful as they appeared to be, and when they bought the rights from large sums of money, they didn't do exactly. He understands what I'm talking about. <laughs> they didn't do as well as expected. So that that sort of big big advance for a successful digital book is no longer happening. But I talked to Hugh Howie and your own West Australian Colin Tabor, who'd also self-published, about the options. And I was thinking maybe I could write some shorter fiction, novella size, which is about half the size of a standard short novel, and digitally self-published that as a free sample for people at Supernova. So I did, and it worked really well. And I have figures showing um, the sales spike on my tiger after I went to a supernova and gave away 500 copies of the little erotica black scales white fur. People, I gave away black scales white fur and people went and bought white tiger just because they like what they've seen. So I went and talked to Kim Wilkins at the University of Queensland and me glad and went on and I, she said you are in a unique position to uh, add to the knowledge here about digital self-publishing because there isn't very much being said about any academic sphere. There's quite a lot happening in the business sphere, the bookseller, publisher, magazine and places like that. They're, in fact, it's pretty much done and dusted. But academia hasn't really done the research. There's only been one or two really intense investigations into how digital publishing is working. So that's my thesis and as part of it I'm digitally self-publishing another novella and going through the process and adding an exegesis on how the process works and how it is working for other authors. And what I did was I did a call out on Facebook, which was full of authors, my, my friends, and I said, has anyone uh, done a self-published novella who's a traditional publisher? They've been traditionally published. Has anyone done this? as a marketing tool and I got nine people put their hands up straight away. One had never digitally self-published anything. Two had never traditionally self-published anything. Three had used it as a way of re-releasing books that had gone out of print and the rights had reverted and this is a big thing. Normally if your rights had reverted your book went into the orange sticker remainder pile and then disappeared completely and you'd end up with a couple of books, boxes of them in your basement going mouldy and that would be the end of your great publishing dream. These people now get the rights back and digitally self-publish and they can even produce print books that are indistinguishable from traditionally published print books on CreateSpace. Two had used digitally self-published novellas as a marketing tool which was exactly what I wanted. Three is perfect for a master's style thesis. The interesting thing is both of them are published by Voyager as well, in the same publishing house. So, and uh, that was um, David Henley and Alan Baxter, who were both lovely gentlemen, and I know Alan Baxter very well because I launched his latest book. So now I have to get in and do the case studies, and that's my research. Is Voyager comfortable with their authors? Doing that. Giving their I sat down, down with Rochelle and I said, Rochelle, I've got a novella here. She said, I don't want it. Right. <laughs> no, the size of them is not worth it for them. Uh, to print it is too expensive for the cover price 
They need more words to make it value, of value for the customer. A, a 30,000 word novella is about 120 pages and they're going to have to charge similar to a 100,000 word novel. So it's going to still cost about 20 bucks. So buyers aren't going to buy. Digitally, sure. And really die-hard fans will buy a print copy even if it is $20. But for them, it's not really feasible. And they will do anthologies, but anthologies tend not to do as well either. So they're quite happy for me to go off and do it. Right. Yeah. Great. It's all good for them because if I sell more books, they make more money. <coughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Now, um, <coughs> while you're doing this academic work, is it easy to maintain your mental energy for your fiction writing? No. <laughs> no, no. I was hoping you'd say yes. No, no, God, no. Um, it's, it's really, it's put the brakes on the writing, something shocking. Sorry to hear that. Um, not so much the study is actually the day job, which is just the little bit of extra money that keeps me, uh, my head above water. You're tutoring? I don't tutor, I'm a night security officer. Yes, yeah, stomping around a residential college at University of Queensland. None of, this, none of the residents of the college actually know, don't you know who I am? No, in fact, my nickname is Helga because I'm such a stunning face bitch. They <laughs> need to find out that you're cool. Some of them do. Eventually, they in your books. <laughs> because they're all doctors and lawyers. Oh, okay. They're um, capital P privileged young women. They need speculative fiction too. They need to be aware. I don't think they've read fiction in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone watch Chris Lilly's series, Jamie Private School Girl? Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> they call me Helga. I call them Jermaine. <laughs> they were all, they were all, oh, I shouldn't say this. They were all clustered around the television when that was on every Wednesday, watching the hell out of it. They really, really uh, identified. He did. He really nailed it. For them, are they laughing at themselves? Yeah. Are they? Or yeah. Is that not? They're discussing Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> They're discussing Jamie as if she was a real person. <laughs> oh, you know what she just did? She something so something so terrible. You know how could she do that? Yeah. They think she's a terrible person that they really do identify. It's it's an experience. Yes. So you're juggling a lot of yes. balls. Yes. yes. And sometimes I run out of spoons. <laughs> she gets it. Do you know what, anyone knows spoon theory? Yes. Yeah, I suffer from migraine, so I, she doesn't know about spoon theory. Um, as most people with chronic illness have a certain amount of things they can do in a day. And with migraines, I have to keep my blood sugar level and not overdo it. And basically, I have a certain number of spoons handed me today, each day, which are the things I can do. And sometimes I do too much and it just sort of all... I'll get a migraine and I'll be crippled for the day. So you have to manage it carefully. So sometimes I do run out of spoons. So, what is your writing routine? When, do you, when is your writing time? Or do you feel... Your, no, no, no. Right now, Maddie's in Canada, so it's just me and the cats. So, when the cats permit me, um, what, what I'll do is I'll work from 5 to 11 p.m. Um, I usually spend... When you say work, do you mean... On, you, uh, work at, at college? Yes. yes. 
Um, Thursday nights are the worst because they get a free bus to the hotel, the local pub. The Regatta or the RE? The RE, yeah. <laughs> exchange. I'm a UQ girl. Yeah, the exchange. They have a, they have a big day on Thursday semester when they take back the exchange. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they usually preload as well because the RE, the RE is too expensive, so they're all drunk before they leave. Uh, it gets a little bit rowdy. Um, I'm not complaining about the girls, they're wonderful. Uh, so I work from 5 till 11 and all day Saturday. Um, the rest of the week I try and catch up on things like emails, cover designs, rights discussions, organising supernovas and those comic cons and talks. And then at about midnight my brain shuts down and the words start coming. And then I'll work straight from midnight till 2 or 3 a.m. I'll read what I've written during the day and spend a lot of time editing during the day. But nighttime when my brain is shut down is actually when the creativity happens. It doesn't happen when I'm conscious and aware. So usually I'm half asleep when I write. And I know it's good if I get up the next morning and have no recollection of writing. Yeah. It's amazing. So that first chapter I read in guest of honor speech that was, that was pretty good and pretty funny I have no recollection of writing any of that it just appears in my computer on the next morning and I go yes it's going to be good stuff. that's wonderful it's almost terrible I have no control over it I have no control I'm channeling yeah cool um, we have a question there but you, you're not finished let's see well, it's 3.42, so we can... I talk too much. No, the questions... No, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, question. Oh, it wasn't so much a question. The thing that you mentioned about the um, being most creative at night, that's actually a very documented thing that just recently realised that when you never hit the nail right on the head, when you start going to sleep, your um, creative brain, which is responsible for gives you making dreams, starts working up and becoming a lot more active. The right side represses the left side. The logical side represses the creative side. So when your logical side starts going to sleep, that's when the creative side is set free. Yes. It's annoying as hell. I wish I could just have the... I, with book four, I tried to push it and I tried to, to write the book when the words weren't coming. I tried to force the words and it came out garbage. So you'll get advice from writers going, you need to write every day, even if the words aren't coming, you just need to push through that. And for me, that is complete bullshit. It doesn't work. I can only write when the words come to me. You got any more questions? Or uh, I'm happy for other people to Other people ask can ask questions. questions. Yeah. yeah. How many cats do you have? <laughs> <laughs> None, they have me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I had big cat and small cat. Um, big cat was very, very focused on food. She was a tortie who was. Um, she didn't like it when small cat turned up. Small cat's a tuxedo. Um, and uh, big cat got to lymphoma, and I we had to put her down. And there was a cat-shaped hole in my life. Small cat belongs to my daughter. She and little, her little tuxedo cat sit together and do things. Whenever Maddie comes out and sits on the floor to put something together or cut out a pattern or make a cosplay, her cat is in there helping her out. <laughs> helping. Um, 
my cat hangs around me and sits on my desk and helps me write. Uh, but big cat got lymphoma and we had to put her down. And so I had to rush out and get another cat to fill the cat-shaped hole because I couldn't write without a cat. And so I got another cat and she turned out to be smaller than small cat. <laughs> so what do you call her? Squeaky. She's a squeaky cat. She talks. She's a talker. Oh, cool. <laughs> She's the same colour as the Japanese statue, you know, little tortoise shell. Really huge eyes. She looks as sweet as anything. And she is such a horrible little bully. She actually, for a while there, stopped Small Cat from getting into her tray. Into the, we have three trays, and she wouldn't let Small Cat get into any of them. Wow. Poor Small Cat was sneaking into the garage, and I didn't find out until later. <laughs> so I had to move the trays around and put a barrier in front of them so Small Cat was still safe about going into the tray. And they, they marked the house out as territory, and since Maddie left for Canada, it's just the two of them and me. So now we've got cat arguments about who, who gets to stay with Mum. Squeaky was both of them were neglected. Um, small cat was found, so sad, she was four weeks old, wandering around crying in the 2011 floods. They found her just wandering around at the back of Darrow Pub by herself, four weeks old. So she still freaks out when it rains really hard. Squeaky, whose real name is Pixie. Um, small cat's real name is Inari, like the sushi. Uh, <laughs> um, Squeaky was handed into the RSPCA because she had a paralysis stick on her and they just threw her out because they, she was sick and they couldn't afford the vet bill, so they just threw her out somewhere to the RSPCA. She's lucky to be alive, but occasionally her back legs kind of wander a bit. Um, but she has decided she is the mistress of the house and she makes poor Squeaky and poor small cat's life quite miserable and they argue about the bed. The day before I left the swan pod, Small cat saw me bring the bag out and panicked, and there was just mass hysteria and betrayal. <laughs> they knew. I have a pet sitter who comes in every evening and spends half an hour with them while they hide in the cupboards. Um, will they take revenge on you? Oh, hell yeah. Vengeful. They don't pee on the bed because they're being vengeful, they pee on it because they want to mix their sandwiches, because they miss you so much. Big Cat used to sit with her back to me for days afterwards, <laughs> saying, I'm sorry. That's Cat's way of saying, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, you know, whatever I did to make you go away, I won't do it again. So you're feeling a bit guilty? Oh, hell no, they just can't. <laughs> <laughs> this is more important. This is cats. I mean, I've owned horses, and horses are kind of disposable, is the word. I love horses, but anyone who's owned a horse knows one day you're going to turn around and the horse needs to be put down. Because horses are made out of spun glass, particularly race horses, ex-race horses. God, those things—they just, just—they—they they break. Race horses just break. The only one is walking along the edge, and you never know when you're going to have to put it down. So yes, you love them, but you're aware of the fact that they're going to die, and it, it carries over all animals. Animals are going to die. It's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes, you when yeah you become aware of the fact that your your animal's getting old. And it, yeah, it's And do you have a love for all animals? Does that influence your love of the uh, yeah, zodiac and books? And yeah, yeah. I 
I get really upset when I pe- see people mistreating animals, but at the same time, I'm aware that animals are not people. Mm-hmm. And like when Big Cat had lymphoma, the vet said, now what we can do is put her on chemotherapy and you can give her a tablet twice a day and it'll keep her going for, we don't know how long, it'll keep her going for quite a long time. Now, this, this Big Cat loved her food. She loved her little raw chicken wings and every meal was very, very important to her. And, and when I ate, she would sit next to me and have some of it. And when she got the lymphoma, we could tell something was wrong because she couldn't eat. She would cry for food when I was eating and then when I gave it to her, she just would look at it. And this was kind of the end of the world for this poor animal because for her, food was everything. Uh, She was obviously in in pain and puking all the time as well. So the vet said, I can keep her going for a while with chemo and we may be able to cure this. And I'm like, I cannot do this to this animal. Make her suffer like this through chemo when she doesn't know that it might cure her. Uh, then she said, well, I could put her on steroids and keep her going for a month, but when she stops eating again, we'll have to do it. And like, once again, I have to make the decision. It's different when it's a person and they know what you're doing with them, but with an animal, it's just not worth it. So, yeah. Any more questions? No? Well, I killed the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Killing animals, yes. How are you finding the difference between the way Swan Con is run by the fans and say going to Comic Con or Superman? This is so much more fun for me. Um, because I'm not here to entertain you. We're here to talk about science fiction, science fiction and fantasy, which I love. Whereas the fans come to Comic Con and Superman expecting to be entertained. Uh, if they could get me in the wrestling ring fighting the wrestling guys, I think they would jump at the chance. And they've done that. Not, well, not to me, but occasionally they do a book launch in the wrestling ring and the wrestling guys will, will do, uh, do a routine for whoever's launching the book just to make it more exciting for the fans. I love Supernova, I love Comic Con, I love going. And the energy is fantastic, the cosplay is wonderful. But you guys are my people. Yeah. That, that makes all the difference. You know about what I'm... You know, you understand me! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, we might wrap it up. Love you all. Thank you.